In the passage in Hebrews that we read, we read the second half. In the first half, uh, the author mentions the fact that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And he does that in order to help them, which means to help us, to mature in their walk with him. And that parents who love their children discipline their children. As I was uh, thinking about parents disciplining their children and this being Mother's Day and started thinking about my own mom and things like that, I remembered an incident that uh, happened uh, many, many, many years ago, actually before air conditioning was popular. And uh, it was a Sunday morning in church. My little sister was... uh, She was young. She was probably about three and a half. She could talk very well, and she had a mind of her own. Uh, Seems like she's always been like that. But uh, anyway, but this, she was trying, they were trying to teach her how to behave in church. And she just wouldn't stay in her seat. She wouldn't be quiet. And finally, my mom said, if you do that one more time, I'm going to take you outside and I'm going to wear you out. She did it again. (laughs) And so uh, my mom takes her by the arm and ushers her outside. Now, what happened next was uh, you've got to understand that my little sister is a a professional singer. And she has had a very loud, strong voice her entire life. It was summertime. The windows with stained glass windows, the bottoms would open in or out. I can't remember. In. And uh, so uh, they were open. The fans were going. And what we hear outside is, Ah! Stop it! You're killing me! And it just echoed through the room just about as loud as that probably sounded to y'all. So what the people in First Methodist Church in Cleveland, Texas heard was what sounded like a murder. (laughs) But what the people were seeing that were driving by outside looked more like an exorcism. Because what happened was whenever my mom raised her hand back to give her a swat, she just fell on, my, my, my sister fell on the concrete, started banging her head, her hands, and her feet on the sidewalk while she was screaming, stop it, you're killing me. So the people driving by, they might not have heard, but they could see a, a lady standing over a child who was writhing on the sidewalk. And so I guess that the Pentecostals thought, well, those Methodists are finally getting it right, you know. (laughs) So, uh, but uh, anyway, and that reminded me, sometimes it's tough being a mom. Sometimes you're trying to do the right thing. And uh, it may not be a very pleasant thing to do, but we still have to discipline our children. We still, uh, anyway, we go through a lot of parents. I mean, well, moms go through a lot. And so my heart goes out to all of you who've experienced being moms 
And I'm grateful for mine this morning as well. Years, years later, when I was pastoring in, uh, in Jacksonville, Texas, uh, I met a man uh, on the, outside our, our home. He was a, a Catholic evangelist. He was taking his walk. The Catholic church was about two doors down from us. And uh, he was just out taking a, a stroll. He was there conducting a revival at the Catholic church. His father was, uh, I mean, his name was Father Francisco San Juan. And uh, as we got to know each other, and we were just walking together. He asked me, who is the holiest person you've ever met? And I told him about a, a lady that we knew and uh, met in our first church in, uh, in, in Laird Hill. And, uh, and he said, the, and I asked him, so who's the holiest person that you've ever met? And he said, it was a little old, very, very old, ancient, white-haired lady at a nursing home in West Texas. She was so frail and brittle that they had to strap her to a board so she wouldn't move and break. And I was visiting with her and uh, I asked her if she had any children. And she said, oh, yes, Father, I have children. And he asked her, well, do you see them all? She said, oh, no, Father, I never see my children. And he got kind of uh, upset. He said, when is the last, are, are they able to come? Oh, yes, they're able. When's the last time they, that you came, that they came to see you? He said, I guess about 20 years ago. And he was just incensed. He said, what kind of children would do that? Does it make you angry? And she said, oh, no, father, I love my children. And I forgive them. Said, you've, you've, you've got to have some resentment. Oh, no, Father. I love them. And I forgive them. And I pray for them. And she just kept her peace all the way through. And he was just getting more and more upset. And so finally, he just fell on his knees in front of her and asked her to bless him because she was the most holy person that he had ever met. And she refused to do so because, oh, no, 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 you need to bless me. So finally, he just took her hand and put it on and said, bless me. And so finally, she blessed him. Some moms go above and beyond when it comes to loving and tolerating and forgiving, don't they? And those sorts of moms remind us of what our Heavenly Father is like. They let us know He loves us in spite of our actions, in spite of ourselves a lot of time. Not all people ever reach that level of Christian maturity. But our Heavenly Father wants to help each of us to grow in grace and to grow in our walk with him. And that's one of the Methodist tenets is to grow spiritually, to grow 
in sanctification to become more and more that person that God created us to be and that we really are inside. And so uh, as I was looking through all this, I've, I've seen that the second half of Hebrews, what we read this morning, gives us a to-do list of sorts for the Christian life as far as what we should be doing if we're going to move on into Christian maturity. They're not quick fixes, not three easy steps to success, not things like that. But it offers us six important ways to walk in enduring Christian maturity. And I want to go through the first one of these this morning. And that uh, we see in verses 12 through 13. It says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Just picture someone with, with drooping hands and weak knees and not walking the way that they should. You're picturing someone who is despondent. You're picturing someone who is depressed or exhausted. And often the two go together, don't they? And uh, those things happen in life that can bring about discouragement, depressing things, sad things, hurtful things, disappointing things, frustrating things, heartbreaking things. They happen in this imperfect world. And the Lord understands this. But this is just it. Whenever we get down because of some of life's blows, we can't just stay there. There's a time to grieve, but then there's a time to get up and move on. When Moses died, Joshua and the whole company of Israel grieved over losing Moses. And well, they should have. He had been like a grandfather to most of them that were still alive. And uh, at a point, though, the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, Moses is dead. Now get up. There's a time to grieve and then there's a time to get up and to move on. It's healthy to grieve, but you need to know that despondency, if you stay in it, is one of the great avenues of attack for Satan. Our discouragement is his delight, and he can use it for a great effect. Those who seek to follow Christ must be prepared to resolve in their hearts, I absolutely refuse to gratify the devil by staying downhearted. It doesn't mean that you stuff your feelings. You'd handle them, but we need to handle them rightly. Satan would love nothing more than to see our arms weakened, our knees buckling, 
that's also a description of fear. It is a, a, a weak need person is somebody who's afraid. Uh, and our paths veering off the course of obedience. He would love to see that. You see, despondency is something that if you pet it, if you just, uh, uh, just, just, just languish in it, it can immobilize you. And the enemy, if he can't have your soul, will try to sideline you through despondency. Because as long as you stay on your pity pot, you're no threat to him. I saw something the other day. It said that uh, God can't steer a life that's stuck in park. And that's true. You're not going to be going anywhere if you're stuck in park. It's possible to become your own worst enemy if you don't guard your emotions. And what I'm talking about is not just sucking it up, you know, and and ignoring. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to hurt. There's a time to heal. But then, even as you're going through this process, if you're going through it with the Lord, He will make it clear that, okay, now it's time to get back on track. When you stand back and view the book of Hebrews as a whole, it screams a unified message. And this is it. God is for you, not against you, even if you're going through some tough stuff. He's with you and he hasn't abandoned you. If you seek him, you will find him. He wants you to grow and not get stuck in spiritual infancy. He wants you to build perseverance and consistency in your life. And finally, it's going to be worth it all when you see Jesus. What's coming is much more magnificent than anything this world has to offer. God doesn't offer us, he doesn't promise us a trouble-free life, but he does promise to be with us through the troubles. Trusting Jesus doesn't mean that there'll be no trials, but it does mean that the trials can have meaning and purpose, and you can grow through them. Those who walk in faith know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. And so God uses trials to conform us to the image of Christ. In the Psalms, David is very transparent about his emotional ordeals. And he lets us know what he's going through, whether it's uh, something that's happy or something that's sad. And he, he talked to his soul about things and he talked to the Lord about things. Uh, whether uh, he was up or he was down, whether God seemed near or far, or if people were with him or against him, he usually resorted to confession and prayer, praise and intercession. And he made a habit of seeking God until he broke through. And so David shows us a really good place to start when we're in despair. 
two different, there's several different places in the Bible. I'm just going to share two of them with you where he asks his soul, why? And that's something that you should do. If you find yourself in the dumps, if you find yourself uh, feeling uh, really, really down, ask yourself why? You need to know why, because you're not going to be able to do anything about it until you know why. Now, I understand there are some people that would just like to just stay there, just 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 glory in their in their just sadness. It seems like some people think they get more attention when they're like that. And so they just draw from it just more for me, you know. And so that's just part of it. But uh, that's not what the Lord wants of us. And so he asks his soul, why? In, in, 40, in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And then he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So first of all, he asks his soul, Why are you so down? Why are you so why why are you in this spot? And then he reminds his soul that this is just for a while. And he reminds his soul, there's gonna come a time when I'll praise him once more for the help of his presence. Then in verses in, in uh, Psalm forty two, verse eleven. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And then he tells his soul, Hope in God, for I shall praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why, and it helps you to know why, so you'll know how to pray and what to do. The loss of a loved one, that's one of the reasons why. And you should take your grief, your sadness to the Lord. You should pour your heart out before him. And he will be the comforter to you. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. There are times in life when it's kind of you, when you need the Lord, kind of like it's when it's cold, cold winter time, and you have a big, thick, down comforter, and you can just snuggle up in it and feel so secure and so comfortable. The Lord wants to be your comforter in the tough, tough times. Guilt. Guilt can cause you to get down and can make you start to doubt yourself. And we know from his word what to do when we're feeling guilty. You confess and you receive forgiveness. There are other things that can cause uh, cause you to be down, but and a whole lot of them, if you're really honest, boil down to just immaturity. Just being we're just refusing to grow up either as an adult or uh, as a child of God. Uh, self-centeredness, uh, 
Sometimes if you go to the Lord, and I encourage you, whatever you're feeling down and what you're feeling down, go to him and talk. And if you're being, if it's a self-centered thing, by sharing it with God in the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's going to become clear that you're just wanting your way. You're just trying to tell God what to do. You're just trying to tell him what to do with other people. And, and you're trying to be, uh, them, uh, or be, be, anyway, try to be somebody that you're not. I hope y'all can't hear that. Can y'all hear my, uh, phone ringing? I don't even know where it is. Oh, I do. It's in my car. There, they stopped. That's good. So anyway, you were hearing my hearing aid, my phone. Anyway, you needed all that. Anyway, immaturity, self-centeredness, comparison. You look across the street, the neighbor's got a new car. And you're still paying on yours and can't get a new car. They're getting a Beamer and you're driving a Ford and you just don't like it. it's a nice Ford. But anyway, but so you start comparing so many people in their careers do this. They compare themselves with their peers, with the people they that's one of the things that happens at high school reunions, isn't it? You start comparing. How am I doing in relation to old so and so, you know, and uh, and it can bring you down if you feel like you're doing worse than than the rest of them are, can it? But the thing is, you don't uh, be comparing yourself with other people. You compare yourself with what the Lord and who the Lord is calling you to be where you are. What he's calling you to do is be the best you for him right now where you are. And it is amazing how he can turn things around in a heartbeat, if you're willing to just uh, uh, obey him and do what you know what he wants to do. I have seen so many of my buddy preachers, fellow preachers, uh, get so down because so-and-so got a big church and he or she was still stuck at this little church. And uh, uh, anyway, I can remember, you know, Sharon and I stayed P-O-R-E, poor, for a long time, serving in the ministry. But we remained faithful, and we tried to bloom where we were planted. And then all of a sudden, one day, I was making as much money as district superintendents didn't have to put up with their hassle. Uh, the Lord just uh, just blessed us. It was incredible the way that he blessed us. And so, uh, anyway... So don't compare. Keep your eyes on the Lord and what he has for you to do when he has you to do it. So that's another one of those immature things is comparison. Sinfulness, not wanting to give up certain sins. It's going to keep things between you and the Lord from being what they should. And you're going to feel it. You're not going to sense his presence and you're not going to have his help as long as you're keeping your back turned to him. And so bring those all to the Lord. And as you talk, he'll be honest with you. He will let you know what's going on. 
and what you need to do. So uh, we, we can learn a lot from the book of Job. Many people wonder why in the world did God do that to him? At the very end, you start to see what's going on. Now through it, at the end, Job just flat explains it, doesn't he? He says, uh, up till now, I've known about you. Now, Lord, I know you. And he grew tremendously through his trials. Yes, he had tremendous losses. He had the same wife all the way through. That wife that told him, just curse God and die. You know, I mean, that's the way people look at that. He was in such, I don't, I think people give her a bad rap. I don't think that she was, that he, that she was trying to just get rid of him or curse him. I think that he was in such agony and just looked to be in such bad shape. She thought it'd be better if he just went to be with the Lord. And so, uh, but he, uh, he, he had the same wife all the way through. He lost his kids. He lost his crops. He lost everything. But he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And at the end of the story, he knows God in ways he's never known him before. He knows things about himself. He realizes he was a control freak. He was trying to tell God to take care of his kids and all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, he realized God was God and Job was Job. Job was never going to be God, but he had a God that loved him in spite of himself. And he was just amazed that God would even give him the time of day. At the end, Job has more kids and more stuff than he had at the beginning. And one of the lessons from that, it's not kids and stuff that life's all about. It's about our life with God and how we relate to Him. The psalmist David uh, was like Job in that he always had the hope of the Lord within him. And in Psalm 27, 13 through 14, we read, we read these words. I would have despaired had I believed that I would, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. No matter how bad things got, David always knew this is going to pass and I'm going to get through this and I'm going to see the good of the Lord in this lifetime. I'm not just going to uh, just eat dirt and die. You know, it's going to be that I am going to move on with the Lord. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart Take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. 
Several times in the past week or two, I've been in conversations and it's become clear uh, that uh, a believer is going to go into times of darkness. But for a believer, and even talking to people, you can hear this attitude. Grief and, and despondency, dark times in our life are like a tunnel. There's light on the other side. Now, if you just sit down in the tunnel, you're not going to be going anywhere. You're not going to get to the light. But if you'll keep moving on with the Lord, you're going to see the light once more. Just keep moving forward and you'll come into the light again. So wrapping up here, I'll just give you just a few little things to take home with you. Take your despondency to the Lord. Don't let it be something that separates you from him, which it can do. Be honest with him about why you are downcast and be honest with yourself about why you're downcast. Listen to what he says to your soul. Resolve that you're going to move on with him, just doing your best to be his in each moment. Trust that the Lord is good and is going to bring good into your life from that that you're going through right now. There's a phrase that you'll find over and over in the Bible, and it's not meant to be used like this, but it is very encouraging. And the Bible does basically say this. Anytime there's something dark going on in your life, remember these words. It came to pass. It came to pass. It came, but it will pass. Hang in there with the Lord and you'll see his blessing and his light once more. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.